Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. So we tend to assume part of our fear of uncertainty comes from this assumption that the decisions we're making are one-way doors. In other words, you the door opens one way. You enter into this new room that you haven't been in before and you close it and there is no getting out, right? So if you take a new job, if you move to a new city, if you, you know, give a shot at being an entrepreneur and things don't work out as you hoped, you assume that you're stuck. But that assumption in many cases is incorrect because a lot of the doors we're navigating in our lives come with two-way doors. So you can go in, you can have a look, and if you don't like what you see, you can walk back out. Um, and the example I give in the book is from Richard Branson and his launch of Virgin Atlantic. You know, launching an airline is an extremely risky and a very expensive bet, and uh, it looks like a one-way door at first glance. But mm. Branson took what looked like a one-way door and changed it to a two-way door by negotiating this deal with Boeing that allowed him to return the first airplane he bought if his airline uh -huh. didn't take off. Yeah. So I think you know, as people are, one way to get a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty is when you are facing one of these sort of major life decisions, just ask yourself, is this a one-way door or a two-way door? Uh, and if it looks yeah. like a one-way door, ask if your interpretation is correct, because often we're so conditioned into believing that these rooms only come with one-way doors that sometimes a one-way door is just masquerading. Uh, it's not, it's mm -hmm. not real. It's actually a two-way door in reality. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? 
Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Ozan, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually, uh, you know, found out about your work through way of um, both the fact that you and I have had a conversation where I've been a guest on your podcast, but you recently wrote a book called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. And I had no idea that this was your background. Uh, so on that note, uh, I want to start by asking you, uh, what was the advice that your parents gave you about careers or making your way in the world when you were growing up? So the one piece of advice that comes to mind, which I took to heart and which I still apply to this day, it was uh, something that my dad would tell me, which is, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. Um, and so I grew up in, in Istanbul and lived there until I was 17 and then came to the United States to study astrophysics um, and grew up in a family of no English speakers. Uh, but my parents, you know, even though they didn't speak any English, they'd never been to America, they had a firm belief that anything you can dream is is within reach 
if you have the will, the determination to try it. Um, and so my dad would always sort of reinforce that point growing up, can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. And so, you know, the one example which eventually led to me writing the book, you mentioned Think Like a Rocket Scientist, is um, uh, where I took what that, my dad's advice. I was a senior in high school in Turkey, and I'd just gotten accepted to Cornell to study astrophysics. And shortly before I arrived there, I researched what the astronomy department was up to. And um, I learned that an astronomy professor, his name is Steve Squires, was in charge of a NASA-funded project to send the rover to Mars. Um, He had also worked under Carl Sagan as a graduate student. And Carl Sagan was a hero of mine growing up. I'd seen the original Cosmos series. So this was too good to be true. And there was no job posting, but uh, so I was intimidated, but I emailed him, just keeping my dad's advice in mind, and said, hey, you know, here's my resume. I'd love to to work for you. I had the lowest of expectations, but keeping that advice in mind, I just reached out to him. And uh, much to my surprise, he invited me for an interview, and, and uh, it eventually offered me the job on the operations team for what would become the 2003 Mars Exploration Rovers Project. Mm, wow. So... You, one of the quotes that immediately caught my attention when you opened the book was that you said conformity in the educational system saved us from our worst tendencies, those pesky individualistic ambitions to dream big and devise interesting solutions to complex problems. The students who got ahead weren't the contrarians, the creative trailblazers. Rather, you got ahead by pleasing authority figures, fostering the type of subservience that would serve you well in the industrial workforce. Now, um, I wondered about that quote, particularly in the context of being educated in a country like Turkey and having Turkish parents, because, you know, you said your dad said, you know, you can't win the lottery without buying a ticket. Now, let's say that you didn't want to be a rocket scientist and you told him, you know what, dad, I'm going to go be an artist. Hmm. But we, we think you would have had the same message because I think in immigrant cultures, there's this tendency to seek out security, um, partially because of the fact that, it, I mean, I, I understood my parents' logic when I finally figured out that context plays a big role in all of that. Totally. And I, I, and I do think my parents, and this is much to their credit, uh, they were unlike many parents in the culture that I grew up in, in that I think they would have supported me even if I decided to become an artist or a soccer player or a musician. Um, but that is so rare. And, uh, and it's in part for the reason you mentioned, which is you know, we're, and to a lesser extent in the United States, but it's certainly true here as well. Um, we're living in very conformist cultures uh, and the career paths tend to be predetermined. And so in Turkey, it was like, you know, you either became a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer. And that was it, right? <laughs> like those are the, yep. the three options you had. I could relate. Yeah. yeah. And, um, but my parents were very adamant about just saying, look, you have to follow your own path. And so even, so there was a big disconnect between the education system that I was operating in. And then I come home and be in this environment where my parents were basically telling me to be a nonconformist, um, yeah. to, to embrace my autonomy and to sketch out my life path for myself, regardless of what I was being inculcated with in, in school. Uh-huh. Well, the other thing that I, I wonder is, you know, you went to a place like Cornell, I went to Berkeley. These are schools that in a lot of ways embody what you have just said here. Um, because basically, at, at least, you know, when I went to college, it was very clear, there were a certain set of criteria that you had to meet. And, you know, if you didn't, you wouldn't get in. My sister and I were very clear on the fact that we probably wouldn't have gotten into Berkeley with the grades we have now. Uh, and I, you know, I think that what happened to me was that the options in front of me blinded me to the possibilities that surrounded me. And so I wonder, you know, particularly cause you chose to go to a school like Cornell, like what, how do you want to do that? Particularly in a system where it's so indoctrinated. And the funny thing is the society 
in many ways rewards you for this conformity with a education at an Ivy League school, um, a prestigious job at Goldman Sachs. So how do you navigate those those two contradictions? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, so for me, going to Cornell, getting to really any college in the United States was a way of escaping the conformist culture that I was operating in, in Turkey. Um, like I said, the, my home environment was, was very safe for nonconformity, but the education system was not. Um, I give an example in the book, like our teachers would, in elementary school, each student got assigned a number. Um, and our teachers would call us by that number as opposed to our name. I mean, <laughs> talk about sort of robbing like wow. the individuality of, of each student. So my my name wasn't Ozan. It was like 154. And to this day, by the way, my number is my ATM pin code. Um, <laughs> <laughs> change, your, change your pin code alerts uh, frequently be damned. I still, I still kept it. So for me, you know, coming to the United States was very much, uh, you know, I had to sort of reach escape velocity and, and get out of that conformist culture um, because I just wasn't suited for it. I wasn't happy in the mm-hmm. education system in Turkey. And so coming here was, was, a, was a big win for me in, in so many different ways and getting into Cornell and, yeah. and getting to work on this Mars mission. So why do you think more people are not as you know, daring as you are you know, to say, okay, I don't even know if there's a job here, but here's what I want to do. I'll come and do, you know, whatever it is. I, cause I look, like I said, I, I looked back at, at college and it was the, the biggest mistake I made. I, this is fresh on my mind, partially because I'm about to talk to a group of students at Babson who are all seniors, uh, right after we get done. And, you know, like the thought is that, wow, you've been so conditioned to choose from the very things that have been put in front of you that you think that this system works exactly the way that it's defined by other people. So you think, okay, my way to find a job is to go to LinkedIn or whatever it is. I can only apply to the jobs that are on job boards. Why is like why are more people not like you, and how do we begin to create more people like you? I think we're taught to not question assumptions. So we're handing mm-hmm. things, especially in the education system, right? There is one right curriculum, one right way to interpret history, one right way to get an A. There aren't multiple interpretations, multiple ways of looking at things. Um, you know, in math and science classes, for example, the problems are just handed to you. You can't question the problems. You can't reframe the problems. You can't redefine them, which is wildly disconnected from reality, by the way. As you know, like in real life, you have to find problems yourself and re- redefine them and reframe them. And so I think our education system and in some respects also well-intentioned parents get in the way of, of questioning assumptions, as you said, shaking sort of settled expectations uh, in terms of what a typical career path should be like. And so I was fortunate enough to grow up in a family where I was indoctrinated with this belief that I could basically do anything I wanted. And I wasn't necessarily stuck with the assumptions and the routines and the processes and the habits that were handed to me. And I carried with that. I mean, even when I got to Cornell, I, um, I, you know, the idea of like, picking a major and sticking with that uh, rubbed me the wrong way. So there was this program at Cornell where you could apply, it's called College Scholar, to free yourself from all degree requirements, except you needed 120 degrees, to gra- 120 credits, I'm sorry, to graduate, but you could take any classes you wanted. So you got to make up wow. your own major. And I was like, yeah, I want in. I mean, that was, and you had, you know, like that, that was the path for me, which, and I ended up getting into this program where I designed my own major. And so, so I think it, it starts very young. And once that conditioning kicks in and is reinforced by parents, 
by teachers, yeah. by the education system, it becomes really hard to do the sort of thing that you're talking about to begin questioning assumptions, to adopt first principles thinking. And so, yeah. and the remedy isn't easy. I mean, you, you have to switch your entire mode of conditioning in an, in a, to a place where like you're questioning everything and questioning everything uh-huh. is really inefficient, right? You can't go through yes. life questioning everything you do. <laughs> <laughs> like the route yeah. you take to work and like i routinely copy other people's choices in in areas where i don't like i just don't care like fashion uh-huh. and music and interior design like things i don't care about but in areas uh-huh. of my life where change matters and creativity matters i've just made a, a habit since i was very young of like just very deliberately asking why am i doing what i'm doing like why am mm-hmm. i going to linkedin to find a job why am I? And yeah. usually the answer, by the way, is because everybody else is doing it. And if, yeah. if, if that's the answer, that's, that's, the, that's a sign there that you are not adopting first principles thinking. You're simply doing uh-huh. things because other people are doing it. So you need to be very deliberate about deconditioning yourself from that, from that mode of operation that's just been so heavily uh, reinforced. Yeah. Well, it's funny. People, you know, kind of have asked me like, what is the the sort of purpose of the people that you choose and, you know, the way that you have these conversations. And I think I told somebody once, I feel that my mission in life to some degree is to undo the social programming of people in society mm. and to unplug them from the matrix, right. uh, you know, so to speak. I mean, but not through my own work, through the, you know, exposure to mental models and different ways of thinking. So let's, let's get into the book. Let's, I mean, you've kind of alluded to some of the, the principles here, but, um, I think that the thing that, you know, like I said, is, is most people probably hear this and think, oh, think like a rocket scientist. My roommate was joking with me this morning when he saw the book. He's like, yeah, only a smart person would want to read that. And, you know, we, have this, we only have, we have this ongoing joke that he's like, you know, that I'm smarter because I went to Berkeley and I was like, you're an idiot because you didn't <laughs> like, um, you know, and, and of course the funny thing is that literally is some of the cognitive bias that you speak of. Um, so I think I want to start with this whole idea of, of flying in the face of uncertainty. And you know, we say two things about uh, uncertainty, and that is that our obsession with certainty leads us astray, and all progress takes place in uncertain conditions, and that our yearning for certainty leads us to pursue seemingly safe solutions by looking for dark keys under street lamps. Instead of taking the risky walk into the dark, we stay in our current state, however inferior it might be. And you know, I, I see this over and over. You know, I, I think that one of the things I'd always said, particularly about online courses and why I think Unmistakable stood out was because when I took an online course, the number one thing I did in that blog mastermind course was I didn't follow the instructions to the letter. Mm. That made all the difference. And so with that in mind, um, talk to us about how we navigate this dynamic of, you know, seeking certainty while also knowing that progress takes place only in uncertain conditions. Sure, and the story you alluded to there with uh, with respect to looking for our street uh, our keys under um, under street lamps instead of in the in the dark. It's the story, the classic story of the drunk who's looking for his keys under the street lamp uh, because that's where the light is, even though he lost his keys in some dark corner of the street. But the dark is super risky, and that's a metaphor for how most of us live our lives. This is true for the individuals and and for businesses as well. Um, you know, marketers use the same bag of tricks over and over again because changing means introducing uncertainty. Um, mm. Pharma companies offer drugs that are only a marginal improvement over what's on the market as opposed to the one that's going to cure Alzheimer's disease. Um, you know, movie studios launched the 17th sequel to Fast and Furious 
um, because you know <laughs> betting on a on a on a new idea is too risky. So we keep looking at the rearview mirror and doing what we did yesterday, and that's in large part due to a fear of uncertainty. Because anytime mm-hmm. you're exploring unknown territory, the same questions keep popping up. What if this doesn't work? What if this fails? What if people point and laugh? And instead of finding out the answers for sure, we stay within our current states, however inferior it might be to, to other possibilities. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so as you said, Sirini, all progress takes place under uncertain conditions. So if you look at you know, scientific history, Almost any discovery, any major breakthrough you can think of, there is first chaos and immense uncertainty, and then the breakthrough comes when the scientists embrace mm-hmm. the uncertainty as opposed to, to rejecting it. So I offer a couple of um, strategies that people can use to navigate this, this dynamic, but one is the, the difference between one-way doors and, and two-way doors. So we tend to assume part of our fear of uncertainty comes from this assumption that the decisions we're making are one-way doors. In other words, you the door opens one way. You enter into this new room that you haven't been in before, and you close it, and there is no getting out. Right. So if you take a new job, if you move to a new city, if you you know give a shot at being an entrepreneur and things don't work out as you hoped, you assume that you're stuck. But that assumption in many cases is incorrect. Because a lot of the doors we're navigating in our lives come with two-way, come with uh, two-way doors. So you can mm-hmm. go in, you can have a look, and if you don't like what you see, you can walk back out. Um, and the example I give in the book is from Richard Branson and his launch of Virgin Atlantic. You know, launching an airline is an extremely risky and, and very expensive bet, and uh, it looks like a one-way door at first glance. But mm-hmm. Branson took what looked like a one-way door and change it to a two-way door by negotiating this deal with Boeing that allowed him to return the first airplane he bought if his airline Uh didn't take off. Um, So I think, you know, as people are, one way to get a little bit more comfortable with uncertainty is when you are facing one of these sort of major life decisions, just ask yourself, is this a one-way door or a two-way door? Uh, And if it looks like a one-way door, Ask if your interpretation is correct, because often we're so conditioned into believing that these rooms only come with one-way doors that sometimes a one-way door is just masquerading. Uh, it's not, it's mm-hmm. not real. It's actually a two-way door in reality. So we know a lot of you have been listening to us for years, and it means the world to us. What we do here at The Unmistakable Creative wouldn't be possible without the support of our listeners. If the podcast has been valuable to you, one of the best ways you can support us is to subscribe to Unmistakable Creative Prime, which gives you access to transcripts, all of our courses, monthly coaching calls, live chats with our guests, and an incredible community of creatives. And it costs less than you spend on a cup of coffee every month. For the school teachers and people in our education system, Prime is completely free to help you with this transition to teaching online. We've packed it with a ton of value and actionable content, and we hope you'll check it out. Just go to unmistakablecreative.com slash prime to learn more. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash prime. Well, I might have shared this this story before on the show, so forgive me if I have for those of you listening, but um, I had a friend at Berkeley when we were in college and he didn't get into the business school at Haas. And so what he did was he took all of the classes, literally up until the day, you know, weeks before graduation. And then he walked into the dean's office and said, look, I've taken every class for the degree. And she's like, wait a minute, you didn't get into Haas? And she said, he said, no. And she was livid. And he said, my parents are going to be here Saturday. So can I walk? Hmm. They had no choice but to grant him the degree. It was kind <laughs> of, And it was one of those moments where I thought, wow, this is a system that 
has rules that appear to be set in stone, but it's all an illusion. Right, exactly. And and the rules around us are created by people who are no smarter than us. Um, they just happen mm. to be the rules, and they often exist in response. To, they were created in response to problems that no longer exist, but we're uh-huh. so conditioned into believing that the rules can't be bent, they can't be questioned, that those people, like your friend, um, who have figured out a way around it, get ahead in life because because of that quality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, let's talk about this whole idea of reasoning for first for mm-hmm. first principles because I, I really loved the Elon Musk story. So um, I think that that maybe be a perfect place for you to kind of give us an example of what it means to think um, by reasoning from first principles. Sure. So Elon Musk, uh, when he was thinking about starting SpaceX to with the audacious goal of sending people to Mars, uh, first he needed a rocket. So he started shopping for rockets on the American market. Um, now, sticker shock isn't in the vocabulary of most Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, but that's what he yeah. experienced when he he looked for rockets to buy. I think one rocket would have set him back like uh, 65 or $70 million, and he would have needed two. And then, you know, of course, he'd have to pay for the payload and the people and, and everything else. So that was too expensive. He then went to Russia uh, to shop for um, decommissioned intercontinental ballistic missiles. I kid you not. (laughs) Right. Without the the nuclear warheads on top, of course. Um, And that also was too expensive. And so on one of his trips back from Russia, um, he had an epiphany. And he arrived at that epiphany using, uh, using this principle from physics called first principles thinking. And so at bottom, first principles is a way of questioning all assumptions in a system until you're left with the fundamental non-negotiable components. So you hack through Mm -hmm. assumptions as if you're hacking through a jungle with a machete until you're left with those raw materials. And so you go from, and the metaphor I use in the book is you go from being a cover band that sings somebody else's songs to being an, should I say, unmistakable artist, an original artist that does the painstaking work of, of actually creating, creating something new. And so Elon Musk realized that as he was trying to buy rockets that other people had built, he was playing the role of a cover band. And so he went back to first principles and asked himself, you know, what's actually, what are the raw materials of a rocket? What's needed from a physics perspective to put a rocket into space? And when he looked at the raw materials if you bought those raw materials on the market, it was like 2% of the typical price of, of a rocket that, uh, that he would have bought from somebody else, which is a crazy ratio. So instead of buying rockets that other people had built, he decided to yeah. build his rockets from, from scratch. So if you walk through SpaceX's factories today, you'll find people you know, welding titanium, building in-flight computers. Um, And another way he used first principles thinking, and this is true for Jeff Bezos as well with Blue Origin, one of the fundamental deeply held assumptions in rocket science was that that rockets that went into outer space couldn't be reused. So they would plunge back into the ocean or burn up in the atmosphere. And, And imagine doing that for a moment for commercial flights. Like you fly from, I don't know, Portland to San Diego, (laughs) you step off the plane and then someone walks up to the plane and just torches it, which is what we were doing for for rockets for decades. And, and, you know, a Boeing 737 is actually not that 
not that much less expensive than a than a rocket. Uh, but uh-huh. commercial flights are so much cheaper because airplanes can be reused over and over again. And so one of the things that both SpaceX and Blue Origin have done is to question that assumption and and build build these rocket stages that can be reused, refurbished, uh-huh. and sent back into back into space like certified pre-owned vehicles. Hmm. So there's one thing that you said, and I want to ask you this, you know, I want to go through this in terms of like a practical example that I, you know, I was trying to think of this for myself, but you know, you said the same qualities that make knowledge of virtue can also turn it into a vice mm-hmm. knowledge shapes, knowledge informs, it creates frameworks, labels, categories, and lenses through which we view the world. One of the things that came to my mind as I was reading this is that I've been off of Facebook for probably 25, 26 days now, and I've realized that my thinking and my, my thought process is more original and, and unique sounding than it's ever been. Right. And what I realized is that, you know, the amount of cognitive bias that gets, you know, infused in you when you use social media, which we'll talk about, because I know you go into all of that, really kind of strips you of your originality because you're basically drowning in the sounds of other people's voices. Um, So with that in mind, let's say that we were to take something like a podcast or something like a blog, and we approach it from the whole idea of first principles, like what questions, what assumptions should I be questioning? Um, that's a great question. So with respect to say a blog, I think if you, if the initial approach is to go online and say, okay, I'm thinking about starting a blog, let me see what other people have done. Um, yeah. and so that's, I think what most people do. And, um, and so I think the example here of questioning assumptions in the blog world, uh, will come from Tim Urban, who I interviewed on my podcast. But so when he was thinking about starting Wait by Why, he went online and looked and the standard advice was, you know, you send something to your email list every week. It should be short because people have limited attention spans and it shouldn't be too de- detailed. It shouldn't have any stick figures. It should just be text. So that was the the standard advice. So someone looking for uh, or, or going on a quest for external answers, that would have been the advice they found online. And, uh, and mm-hmm. Tim basically did the opposite on all of that. And so he yeah. looked at that advice, and now his blog, Wait Bob Why, is wildly popular. And his blog posts are book length. I mean, they mm-hmm. are tens of thousands of words, and he sends them infrequently. Um, he basically violated every rule in the blog publishing playbook. Um, yeah. And because of that, he stood out from the crowd. Because the center mm-hmm. is too crowded. So if you're simply doing what other people are doing, you're all reaching for you know, the low-hanging fruit, but the low-hanging fruit has already been picked. And so his yeah. approach was to basically do the opposite of what, what other people are doing. And so to go back to your question about, you know, how do you approach that? I think it's perhaps, it doesn't hurt to know what other people are doing, but but being very cognizant about not copying them. And in some cases, mm-hmm. actually affirmatively asking, like, what if I did the reverse? What yeah. if I took what other people are doing and did the exact opposite? And you don't have to execute but the simple process of like thinking through the reverse is actually mm-hmm. one way of getting yourself to question assumptions and to exercise yeah. those first principles muscles that have probably atrophied because of disuse and decades of conditioning by society. Well, it's funny because people, you know, we've made very clear on our homepage that, by the way, your, you know, fame or lack thereof has nothing to do with how we pick our guests. Mm-hmm. You know, we've said people no to people that literally anybody listening to this has heard of and probably a thousand people would say yes to. And I think that has served us really well. Um, you know, it, it, that's why I jokingly say that my first book, Unmistakable, could have also been just called Everybody is Full of Shit. Um, 
but I don't think Penguin would have wanted to publish that. <laughs> because, you know, and even with the mastermind group that I'm working with, I, I've told them, I said, look, one thing I need you to consider is that my advice is based on my cognitive biases, right. you know, especially because many of them have children. And I say, look, I'm giving you advice based on my life and you need to learn how to adapt it to yours. This is why I always joke I, that I think the next Tim Ferriss experiment should be somebody should drop their kids off at his house for a week and see how his productivity goes. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great idea. Um, and then I then we would see how effective Tim Ferriss really is as a human being. Is he as superhuman as he appears to be? Um, but so. you know, but I, I love the, the the example you gave from your podcast, Trini. And uh, and one of the things that also struck me mm -hmm. is like, you know, I'm with the book coming out now. I'm doing a lot of these podcast interviews, and and many of them I get questions in advance from the host. And you very <laughs> deliberately don't script. Your, your, yeah, interview, your, your right? assistant asked me and yeah. I, I emailed her back and said, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. And, you know, every now and then somebody will ask and I'll say, I've had people try to send me questions when I said, hey, I haven't read your book. I'd really like, oh, I have a list of questions you could ask. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to ask those questions. So why don't you just let me reschedule and read the book? Right. Um, because what is the point to me asking you a bunch of questions that I could get the answers to from reading the damn book? Yep, absolutely. And so and so that's yeah. one way of like, OK, Taking someone, taking something that everybody else is doing and then questioning it. And that's one of the reasons yeah. why your podcast is so successful. Well, you know, the other thing is that when I was thinking about this is what assumptions are we making about the format? And I was like, oh, mm. well, we've done animated shorts. Who says that we can't repurpose everything that we're doing into multiple formats, which we're already looking at, you know, different, you know, show ideas and all sorts of stuff um, based on that. So, yep. And, and let's, uh, just, uh, yeah, just one more example before we move on. Since you mentioned question in the format, I think one of the great recent examples of this is Malcolm Gladwell's audiobook for talking to strangers. Mm -hmm. It yeah. really questions the format in so many different ways. You know, the standard audiobook is the author gets up and reads the whole thing from cover to cover, but he yeah. actually included audio clips from interviews that he had recorded as part of this, um, as part of the, the book writing process. So, the audiobook has this like podcast feel to it in respect, in some respects. And yeah. so um, that's one great example that I, I would encourage people to check out. Well, I think that, that you know, to, to really sum this up, you, I loved this quote because it, it kind of flies in the face of so much of what we think is, is you know, um, right when it comes to this. You said to cut is to make whole, to subtract is to add, to constrain is to liberate. Uh, expand on that briefly and then we'll get to the next section. Sure. Um, so that appears in a section of the book on on Occam's razor. Uh, and Occam's razor is, is, a, is a mental bottle named after this, I think he's a 19th century philosopher, William Occam. Um, and, and the idea is basically that the solution to a complex problem is often the simplest one. And so our temptation mm -hmm. when we're building something is to add and to add and add, right? Where, do, where uh -huh. can I find more? Where can I add more features? How do I create more benefits? But the mental model suggests that you can actually find originality easier by cutting as opposed to adding. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the examples I give in the book is from, from Alinea, uh, which is a three-star Michelin restaurant in, in Chicago. That's won basically every award <laughs> known to man for, for restaurants. And when they first started their business, they were asking you know, the typical question of like, how do we add? How do we add? How do we make this dish? You know, what other vegetable can we add here? But over time, they realize that they, that approach is flawed. And so now they're asking, looking at what they have in front of them and asking, what can we take away? Um, Michelangelo approached sculpting the same way. Uh, there's a famous quote from him where he says, the sculptor arrives at his end 
by taking away what is superfluous. And so this is one way of getting to first principles as well. So looking at what you have in front of you and asking, what can I remove? So, um, well, yeah. Go. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Go ahead. Wow. 
You just gave me an idea. I'm not going to share that right now because I, I want to, you know, let it gestate for a bit. But it, it reminds me of a story. I had a friend who worked at Oracle who was an MIT graduate. Um, and he was, this was when, you know, before it was easy to stream things in the living room, like, you know, early 2000s where, you know, so I, I came over one day. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, he said, I'm a, he was working on RFID. So he said, I'm trying to build a remote to basically take the videos that are on my computer and project them uh, on the TV. Hmm. And, you know, I, I looked at him and I said, well, I said, why don't you just use a wireless mouse? And he said, yeah, I guess I could do that, huh? <laughs> it was just, that was what it reminded me of when you said that. Yeah, and that story actually reminds me of another story from the book, which is about um, this legend. It's not actually true, but I think it illustrates the, the point you just made, um, that NASA spent a decade and, and millions of dollars developing a ballpoint pen that would work in zero gravity and function in extreme temperatures. The Soviets wow. used a pencil. <laughs> wow so that that uh, right. the story is actually a myth but but the moral still holds um yeah. you know everything should be made as simple as possible mm. all right so let's talk about this whole idea of mind at play i mean you um there's a subject here that is of deep personal interest to me you know you say we discourage curiosity also because it requires admission of ignorance asking questions Proposing a thought experiment means that we don't know the answer, and that's an admission that few of us are willing to make. For the fear of sounding stupid, we assume most questions are too basic to ask, so we don't ask them. And, you know, to actually start writing this blog post on curiosity, I talked about the fact that it turns out that, I don't know if this was, you know, your case, but I feel, I feel like every male I have ever talked to has gone through a phase when they were kids where they have a fascination with fire. Mm. Um, yep. like a mini arsonist phase. And I remember because my, you know, one of my friends came over and he wasn't allowed to spend the night anymore. And his mom told him that I would become an arsonist when I grew up. But the more I talked to male friends, and you know, I think this is primarily because I was genuinely curious about the impact that fire would have on things. Like I wasn't burning houses; it was like GI Joe guys and you know, El Fudge cookies. Right. So explain this to me. Like, what is it about? The, I, I know the education system plays a role in, in stifling our curiosity, but I see it all around me. People stop asking questions. Yeah, I think you know. Asking questions, and especially uttering those three dreaded words, I don't know, uh, mm. requires an admission of ignorance, and that's an admission that most people aren't willing to make, in part because they'll come across, I think they assume that they'll come across as stupid, right? Like, they shouldn't be, they should be no, they should know something that the other person is talking about, but they don't, and that makes them somehow less than. I think that's um, that's that's a large part of it. The other part, I think you mentioned, is is both education system and well-intentioned parents, sort of, you know, because as as children, we're just natural, curious observers. Whether it's playing with fire or playing with nature, you sort of a, approach the whole world as your own playground where anything mm -hmm. is possible. But then curiosity over time gets replaced with answers the right answer yeah. the life hacks the silver bullets what have you and i think it's also because answer questions aren't really valued in the business world either and um, mm -hmm. the answers are far more valuable because well they point a way out whereas a question is just the beginning of the inquiry not the end and people look at that and say well it's you know it's too much work let me just go online and see what other people have done um yeah. and then i can find some answers that i can copy from my own Mm -hmm. Well, there's a guy who wrote a book, um, you know, I'm going to reach out to him and try to have him on the show about curiosity. It was a very like science-based approach. And one of the things he actually said is one of the downsides to having this much information at our fingertips 
is that it, it stifles the natural curiosity in which we had to work a lot yeah. harder to find answers. Right. Um, so one, what do you have to say about that? Like, where do we, you know, how do we balance those two things? Cause you know, let, let's face it. I mean, it is incredibly convenient to be able to do that. There are a lot of things where I'm like, okay, I don't need to know this. I just need this one little fact for right now. Um, but again, you know, if it's stifling our curiosity, the byproduct of that is we're not asking questions that could lead us to really interesting places potentially. Yeah. And I think there's a balance to be struck there, right? So it's not like answers are not important or that you shouldn't be looking for answers, but you shouldn't just be looking for answers uh, to the exclusion of asking questions because answers mm-hmm. are often, and, and on top of that, so one strike a balance between finding answers and asking questions and second is, don't just accept the answers you find. So hang a question mark, you know, to the extent you go online and, and research something about how to start a blog or podcast to go back to our earlier conversation. Instead of taking the answers you find as granted, just hang a question mark at the end. Um, yeah. You know, ask yourself, how can I put my own spin on this? So yeah. it, it doesn't mean you just you stop looking for answers. It's just you treat answers like, the beginning points and not the end. Yeah. So one other idea that you talk about here is combinatory play, which I, I really appreciated. I think that, you know, uh, my version of, of describing that was creative cross-training, but you mm. said combinatory play requires exposing yourself to a motley coalition of ideas, seeing the similar and the dissimilar and combining and recombining apples and oranges into a brand new fruit, fruit. with this approach, the whole becomes more than the sum of its parts. And I, you know, we're doing a month uh, inside our, our private social network about transforming information into wisdom. And I, the thing that I'm, I'm coming across more and more is that, wait a minute, if you're just reading the same self-help books and listening to the same right. shit all over again, there is no way that information turns into knowledge or wisdom. Um, so what exactly is combinatory play? Like, how do people bring more of this into their lives? Sure. So combinatory play, the idea goes back to our, the name goes back to Einstein. And so he said combinatory play is the essential feature in in productive thoughts. And so that requires basically that you don't specialize in just one field. So instead of Mm -hmm. just looking to what you know, what your industry knows, it requires exposing yourself to ideas from very different places. So not reading the same books that others around you are reading, not listening to the same music that others around you are listening to, not reading the same magazines, not reading, not attending the same conferences. And so adopting ideas from diverse disciplines um, allows you to be original in a way that many people are not. Because a breakthrough in one field is often a combination of ideas from from other fields. Um, so the ex- yeah. one of the examples I give in the book is from Johannes Gutenberg, you know, he had a printing press problem. So he looked to other industries like the olive oil industry or the winemaking industry that use a screw press to extract juice. And he took that same idea and applied it to, you know, kickstart the era of mass communication in, in Europe. And that was a, mm. you know, very simple, seemingly simple technology, perhaps obvious in hindsight, but it wasn't obvious to the fields of, of, of communication. And so yeah. the borrowing, borrowing of an idea from another field um, helped him become who he was. And, and the mm-hmm. way to, to do this is to, again, branch out and attend conferences that you wouldn't normally attend uh, or pick yeah. up books that, that you know nothing about and surround yourself with people from different professions and backgrounds and interests. It goes back to 
a point you mentioned, Serini, earlier in the conversation about the, you know, the impact of, of social media on our curiosity. I think mm-hmm. that's one of the places where it comes into play here as well, because of algorithms and, and whatnot. We're only exposed to ideas that interest us, that resonate uh, with us, that sort of, mm-hmm. you know, vibrate on the same frequency that we're operating in. Uh, and and yeah. then we also like friend people like us. We follow people <laughs> like us on Twitter. So it becomes this giant echo chamber where we're completely secluded from other ideas, which really hampers um, hampers combinatory play. Um, yeah. And um, well, yeah, go ahead. Well, it's funny you say that because, uh, you know, I... I'm sure you know who Roger Ailes is. Uh, he was the founder of Fox News. Yes. You know, yep. uh, you know, by most accounts, a despicable human being. You know, I'm not a fan of Roger Ailes. And I remember my brother-in-law saw that I had got Roger Ailes' book, You Are the Message, along with the other you know biography that somebody wrote about him. And he was like, what? <laughs> and I said, listen, I'm like, I may not agree with a messenger or who he is, but Roger Ailes built Fox News into a massive media brand. Yep. There's got to be something I can learn from him. Exactly. Um, and this is something that I try to teach my students as well. I'm a, my day job is a, is a law professor. And I, I tell them, look, the best lawyers are the ones who know the opposing side's argument better than the opposition does. So if you, if you only read books that, that you resonate with, if you're not reading, you know, Roger Ailes's uh, book, You Are the Message, <clears throat> then, then you're going to stifle that ability to be able to rebut arguments on the other side, you have to know what those arguments are first. Uh, so that's one yeah. point. And then the second is you'll benefit from from knowing how we built Fox News into into what it is today, even if you don't agree with with the messenger. Um, and so yeah. I think I think that's that's really important. And um, in relation to another idea, I talk about the book it, about an, uh, another idea that I talk about in the book, which is this this notion of trying to prove yourself wrong, which is our, our uh-huh. default is trying to prove ourselves right. But to be able to find what's right, to be able to discover new ideas, not only do you have to exercise this uh, combinatory play muscle, but also expose yourself to ideas that you don't necessarily agree with, because that mm-hmm. reading those will make your own ideas better. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I, I noticed. Um, part of the, I stopped reading Medium because I realized yeah. it's like, oh, when I go here, all I'm getting is content similar to what I've written. Right. Um, and I'm like, wow, the algorithm is basically confirming all of the things I already believe. And I'm, I also have stopped discovering people that I find interesting as a result. Uh, I mean, that's the number one thing I look for is, is literally as my primary filter for how I choose people is, uh, am I curious about this for some reason? Yeah. Uh, does something about this interest me? So with that in mind, you know, let's, let's get into this whole idea of moonshot thinking, because when I saw this, you know, you said moonshots force you to reason from first principles. If your goal is a 1% improvement, you can work within the status quo. But if your goal is to improve tenfold, the status quo has to go. Then you also followed it up with something I thought was really, really observant. You said, we need the idealism of divergent thinking to be followed by the pragmatism of convergent thinking, because often I think that moonshots particularly in the self-help world, seem more like mental masturbation. You know? <laughs> They're like, oh, I'm dreaming of this like crazy life in which right. you know, I, I date the most beautiful people. I have a six-pack, I have six-pack abs, live in a mansion, and I'm the most enlightened human being on the fucking planet. <laughs> now, that's nonsense. Nobody is like that. Um, you know, this is why I joke. I said, if I could actually implement the advice of everybody I've ever interviewed, I would be crushing it. But I'm human. Right. So how do you take that whole idea of moonshot thinking. Because the other thing I think when I read the word moonshot thinking is, yeah, well, I don't have a Googleplex and I don't have Astroteller. So sure. let's say that 
I want to apply moonshot thinking to what we're doing here at Unmistakable, or even if our listeners wanted to apply to one of their projects, how would we do that? Yeah, great question. So um, to go back to the first thing you asked, because which is the idea that so divergent thinking should be followed by convergent thinking. So divergent thinking is is this idea of moonshot thinking, where you sit down and you think through a question without considering constraints. So you don't worry about what's possible. You don't worry about what's doable given the budget, the resources, the skills, the software, the fill-in-the-blank has. You just re- let your brain run wild and come up with, with potential answers to whatever you might be struggling with. But that it, that can't be the end of that. Because um, starry-eyed dreamers, as you said, aren't the best um, people to execute on those ideas. You know, You can dream all day, but if you're not doing anything about it, then, then it's not going to work, of course. So that idealism of divergent thinking has to be followed by the pragmatism of, of convergent thinking. And convergent thinking basically brings in constraints into the mix. So now mm-hmm. you take your wild dreams and you collide them with reality um, and, and think through how you can implement what you dreamed about by introducing these, these constraints. And so one of the ideas that I talk about in the book is... Um, a, a, ideas of doing that is is called backcasting. So you look to mm-hmm. this imagined future and then you backward uh, go backward from it to figure out the steps you need to take to be able to get there. So, you know, if you have this again dream of launching a business, you would sit down and write out every single thing you need to do to be able to get to that end goal. And that has a number of benefits. So one is it's a reality check. So to the extent that those steps seem too onerous or not doable for you, well, maybe this is not the right idea. And it's also a reality check because sometimes if you list out everything you need to do, you pivot your focus from outcome to process. So you actually look to, like if you have this idea of, or you want to climb a mountain um, or you want to run a marathon, if you look to everything you need to do to get there, it serves as a really sobering reality check because uh, often we mm-hmm. fall in love with the destination and, right. and forget about the path required to get there like we want to have climbed a mountain we don't actually want to climb a mountain um yeah and so so backcasting is a good way of of introducing some convergent thinking and um and pivoting back to process and the concrete steps required to to achieve that dream um okay Hey, it's Trini. I hope you're liking this episode of The Unmistakable Creative. Did you know that every Sunday, our community manager, Melina, sends out 10 key takeaways from episodes like this one? All you have to do to receive it is sign up for our newsletter. Just visit unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter, and you'll get them delivered right to your inbox. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash newsletter. So what role does your own self-perception and self-belief play in that? Because... Mm. You may have heard our interviews with Greg Hurdle, um, who you know was an old mentor, and he had a very, very clear way of saying something that you know, in some ways, seemed deterministic, but also was realistic. He said, "Look, the modern age, sort of self-help, new age world that we live in, creates these sort of delusional fantasies that anybody can become Elon Musk." But right. he said that's not true. Mm-hmm. He said, "You know." Because he said it's not inspiring to say Michael Phelps is Michael Phelps because he was born that way, or that. Oprah became Oprah because she was destined for that. And he said, we're not all created equal. And I I remember that. It was a harsh reality check, but I think it was still one of our most popular episodes for good reason because he kept it real. And so when you think about a moonshot, like I think of the moonshot and think, am I ever going to be, you know, uh, Larry Page or Sergey Brin? I don't think so. 
Yeah, no, I think I think that's a great point. Um, and what's a moonshot for Elon Musk? So moonshots are relative as well, right? So yeah. I don't have a goal of sending humans to Mars like that. I have I don't have any interest in that. Elon Musk does, so that's a moonshot for him. But I have my own moonshots in my own world, which are certainly more limited compared to what Elon Musk is dreaming about. You know, my moonshot, I don't know, five years ago was to write a mainstream nonfiction book that you can find in in bookstores. And at the time, that seemed out of reach for a number of reasons. Uh, and mm. for me, that was a moonshot. And so, yeah. you know, moonshot thinking doesn't have to be science fiction thinking. It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so in your mm. world, what are you thinking about doing uh, but you're not doing because you don't think you're capable of getting there. And usually our dreams, I mean, the problem that I'm, I see at least in, in my audience and the people that I interact with are not that people's dreams are too big, but they're too small uh, because we've been mm-hmm. conditioned by society that you know, flying low is, is safer than flying higher. And so if you course correct a little bit, in the direction of the moon. It doesn't actually have to be like getting to Mars. Uh, but if you yeah. course correct a little bit in the direction of the moon, then you might end up actually getting there. And even if you don't get there, then you'll uh, you'll fail above everybody else's success. Uh, so I think yeah. it, and it, it's all relative. And, um, and it, to go back to your question too about like, yeah, we're not Google X, we're not Astro Teller, we don't have the the financial might of, of Elon Musk or, or Amazon. Um, but... In, in a lot of cases, it's like you don't, it's not about finances. The, the roadblock to dreaming big tends to be in our head, reinforced by just decades of conditioning by society. Like, um, I, I love Seth Godin's, uh, Seth Godin's book, The Icarus Myth, about mm-hmm. the, which I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners will have heard, or The Icarus Deception is the name of the book, but it's based on the Icarus myth where Icarus's father. Uh, tells him to not fly high too close to the sun because uh, his wings are going to melt and he ignores his father's advice and ends up plummeting to his death. But as Seth Godin points out in his book, there's a second part to that myth as well, which is his father also instructed him to not fly too low because then his wings would get caught, I think, in the, the waves or what have you, and he would also plunge as well. So, But that second part of the myth gets ignored. Uh, we all mm-hmm. focus on this idea that flying too high high is dangerous. So I think course correcting just a little bit in the direction of the moon, so aiming a mm-hmm. little bit higher than you otherwise would, uh, can be quite beneficial. Yeah. So I think that the other thing, you know, you talked about sending two rovers instead of one in this chapter about redundancies. And, you know, you said two things that really stood out to me. When we immediately launch into answer mode, we end up chasing the wrong problem. When right. we rush to identify solutions, we fall in love with our diagnosis or initial answer. Or our initial answer hides better ones lurking in plain sight. But the other thing that really caught my attention is just because a hammer is sitting in front of you, it doesn't mean it's the right tool for the job. Uh, it's only when you zoom out and determine the broader strategy can you walk away from a flawed tactic. And you know, I think about that in terms of uh, people like Gary Vee who go out on Instagram and say, oh, everybody should be on Snapchat. And then mm. millions of people as a result go and you know get on Snapchat. I was like, wait a minute, have you not considered the context here? He happens to be an investor in this company too. <laughs> like... That to me is always one of those things like, okay, is the person who's telling you to do this thing going to benefit from it? Because that is a context to consider. Like if I offered a podcasting course and said everybody should start a podcast, well, I have, you know, a potential upside for you following that advice. Right. Oh, absolutely. And so when people are out looking for 
answers about, say, how to implement a social media strategy, and they find Gary Vee's advice about Snapchat, it's always a search for tactics, right? Tell me what to do. Mm-hmm. Give me the, the three-step formula, the life hack, so I can go out and, and do it. Um, and that's problematic for the reasons that we discussed earlier, because it gets in the way of first principles thinking. Mm-hmm. So it's much better to zoom out and determine the right strategy. So once you determine the right strategy, then the tactics become malleable. So you don't have to go to Snapchat. There are other ways of, better ways actually, of accomplishing the same strategy, the same end goal, um, than copying somebody else's tactics, which gets in the way of of first principles thinking. So it's helpful to just step Mm -hmm. back and ask, like, what is this tactic for? Why is Gary Vee suggesting that I go into Snapchat? Like, what what is the larger goal that that tactic is supposed to serve? Um, and mm-hmm. if that goal resonates with you, if that's what you're trying to build, then step back and you'll be able to identify other tactics that you may have missed before uh, because you were narrowly zooming in on what somebody else who's famous has done and copying their playbook basically play by play. Uh, but when you focus yeah. on strategies or principles, you're, um, you'll be much better positioned to be able to develop your own voice and your own tactics for getting to similar ends. Yeah. Well, let's, you know, we kind of definitely already talked about the whole flip-flopping idea, you know, it kind of is organically made its way into our conversation. Yeah. So uh, I want to skip that one. But uh, one of the things you talked about was testing. And this really struck me when you gave the Seinfeld, ep- you know, ep- example, where you said the distortions introduced by the observer effect are significant. The effect can fool you into believing that a hit show will flop or that a horse is a mathematical genius. <laughs> Now, this is sort of interesting because there's so much research that says, oh, you know, you should basically survey your audience, listen to what they have to say. Uh, You know, there are literally entire books written about this. I know because I've followed the advice in them. (laughs) And, uh, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like, I'm like, okay, well, look, the data might say this, but when we've done things that the data doesn't say to do, we've had some pretty surprising successes. Yeah. And and so the idea in the book about the observer effect and the whole chapter goes back to this, you know, simple principle from rocket science called test as you fly, fly as you test. And the idea is that tests, experiments, surveys should take place. And this is true whether you're launching a rocket, a new business, a new website, really anything. The test or the experiments should take place in conditions as close as possible to the flight. Um, any disconnect between the test and the flight can cause catastrophe in a system as complex as a rocket, but that same principle applies in your own personal and, and work life as well. And so the problem with, with most surveys and most books that sort of instruct people to run surveys is that asking people questions about what they would do or what they would prefer hypothetically is very different than the actual flight. When they actually, when the users actually get the thing you're offering them, um, and the the example I give in the book, one of the examples is the iPhone. You know, the, there was a survey conducted. Apple conducted the survey and asked. Um, I think this was done in the U.S., Japan, and Germ- Germany if they liked the idea of having one device uh, to fulfill all their needs. Only thirty percent. Of them said yes. So they seem mm-hmm. to, if you look at the survey results, they seem to prefer carrying around a separate camera, a separate phone, a separate iPod type music player instead of a single device that could perform all three functions. Um, but then once the iPhone actually came out, people felt very differently. Once they could actually hold the iPhone in their hands, um, they couldn't let it go. So the indifference mm-hmm. that you saw in the surveys quickly 
morphed into into desire. And so as business owners, it's much better, instead of asking people hypothetical questions about what they would prefer, what they would like, just give them the price, give them the product. So if you're a shoe company and you're thinking about, well, how how much would people pay for this shoe? Give people the shoe. Ask them mm-hmm. to actually take out their wallet and and fork over their hard-earned dollars to the cashier. That's very different than asking them hypothetically in a survey how much they yeah. would pay. Because uh, then the mm-hmm. survey spits out perfectly wrong answers. Yeah. Well, I think this will, this is a perfect way to bring us full circle. Like you, you talk about this idea of both failure and success, and I think you had some really interesting ways of observing things. I mean, you you talked about you know that, that we emit black boxes to our detriment. So let's let's kind of go there with the whole failure idea, and then we'll wrap things up with success. Sure. Um, so the the idea of a black box, as uh, as I'm sure your listeners know, it's it's this recording device in an airplane that captures everything that happens and it's actually sort of a misnomer because the black box is, is orange so it can be identified um, readily in the in the event of a crash and so our goal should be to incorporate those black boxes in in our lives I mean there is this notion in in Silicon Valley the, the mantra of fail fast fail often fail forward which I think for the reasons I get into in the book is is misguided it the mantra should really be learn fast, not fail fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah. just because you're failing doesn't mean you're learning from it. And research bears this out. I cite a number of studies in the book, both from the entrepreneurial world, but also there's a study on cardiac surgeons who had boshed a previous procedure. They tend to perform worse on later procedures mm-hmm. because they don't learn from their mistakes. So it's yeah. important to adopt a learn fast. So yeah, you're going to fail. And it's important to not let failure get in the way, but to pivot to a mindset where you're not just mindlessly moving from one failure to the other, but you're actually taking the time to to look at the black box and see what it contains and learning from those yeah. mistakes. Mm. So I think that of all the quotes that stood out in the, the final chapter, you know, where you talk about postmortems and, and the fact that nothing fails like success, you said the next time you're tempted to start basking in the glory of your success while admiring the scoreboard, stop and pause for a moment. Ask yourself, what rank, what went wrong with this success? What role did luck, opportunity, and privilege play? And when I looked at that, I, I thought about my book deal and I was like, yeah, <laughs> uh, that was a fluke if there ever was one. You know, and you think about somebody like Mark Cuban. You know who sells broadcast.com for a hundred million dollars at the height of the dot com boom to Yahoo of all people, right? And he walks out a billionaire, and Yahoo is pretty much you know on running on fumes at this point. Yeah, uh, there's a quote in the book. I think this is from E.B. White, but luck is not something you can mention in the presence of self-made men. Uh, <laughs> people, because you know when you succeed, you tend to look and say, "Like I'm, I'm a genius. I'm so talented. Uh, this was because right. of what I did." And we completely discount the role that luck and opportunity play in the process. But just because you're in a hot streak doesn't mean you'll beat the house. And so mm-hmm. uh, one of the, you know, the, the pieces of advice I give in that chapter is to treat failure and success the same. So follow the yeah. exact same process, going back to the point about black boxes, after a failure and after a success. So once you, when you succeed, it's important to look back and say, like, what went wrong with the success? What role mm-hmm. did luck play? What can I learn from it? Because if you don't do that, then the you know the near misses that didn't quiet uh, become roadblocks to your success will catch up to you in in the in the future. So I think companies should be conducting postmortems not just after catastrophic failures, but also after successes as well. Wow. 
Wow. Um, this has been just absolutely phenomenal. So uh, I have one final question for you, uh, which I know you've probably heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? So I'm going to answer that question with a story about Johnny Cash. Um, in 1954, Johnny Cash walked into the audition room at Sun Records. And at the time, he was a nobody. He was selling appliances door to door and playing uh, gospel songs at nights. He was broke. His marriage was in ruins. And for his audition, Cash picked this gospel song because it was what he knew best. And also, gospel was really, really popular in 1954. Everyone else was singing it. But the audition, which is depicted in the movie uh, Walk the Line, which is really phenomenal, uh, it doesn't go as Cash planned. Uh, Cash begins to sing this slow, dreary gospel song. The record label owner, Sam Phillips, feigns interest for like 15 seconds before interrupting Cash. Uh, And he says, we've already heard that song a hundred times, just like that, just like how you sang it. And he asked Cash to sing something different, something real, something you felt, because that's the kind of song that truly saves people. And that rant jolts Cash out of his conformist, let me sing you some good old gospel attitude. He collects himself and he begins singing the Folsom, uh, the Folsom Prison Blues in that deep, distinctive voice of his. Um, and in that moment, he stops trying to become a gospel singer and he becomes the unmistakable Johnny Cash. So being unmistakable for me requires embracing those distinctive qualities about yourself that the world tries so hard to beat into conformity. It requires singing the the Folsom Prison Blues when everyone else around you is singing gospel. Wow. Um, Incredible. Where can people find out more about you, your work in the book? So um, I have a weekly email uh, that goes out every Thursday and people can sign up for that at weeklycontrarian.com. And the book is called Think Like a Rocket Scientist. Uh, It's available everywhere that books are sold. Uh, Folks can go to rocketsciencebook.com to find the the links to to purchase the book. Um, There's a bunch of pre-order bonuses as well that, that come with the book. So if people forward their receipts to rocket at ozanbarol.com. We'll send them a whole bunch of pre-order bonuses for, for getting the book. I've got a special bonus for the listeners of Unmistakable Creative. If you order Think Like a Rocket Scientist by April 21st, 2020, you'll get two amazing bonuses. The first is a video training with a behind-the-scenes look at my productivity system. You'll find tips on how to defeat procrastination, how to minimize distractions, and how to get more done in less time. The second bonus is a pack of 10 three-minute bite-sized videos with actionable insights from the book that you can implement right away. To learn more and to order the book, head over to rocketsciencebook.com forward slash unmistakable. Once again, that's rocketsciencebook.com forward slash unmistakable. Very cool. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.